0: Hello, it's Jack Tudor here of Attention Magazine. Welcome to Crucial Listening, the podcast where I speak to musicians and sound artists about three albums that are important to them. My guest this time is Daniel Menchi, an abstract sound musician from Portland, Oregon. Daniel's music is something that stretches over your head, covers every single iota of your reality. He takes a particular concept and then stretches it over time and space in a way that seems to just unravel in all directions into the infinite. He released a record called The Soaring on Siege late last year, which features most prominently the beautiful voices of Faith Kalocha and Joe Preston weaving in and out of each other like smoke trails processed, heavily so that they're stretched and smeared it's amazing it's over an hour long and to be stranded halfway down it is to feel like you've always existed inside the soaring that's what I love most about Daniel's work and appropriately this conversation with Daniel was sprawling as well we go really deep on these records and his personal experiences with them there are some wonderful stories inside each one of these three records and listening back to the albums themselves after speaking to Daniel I can still feel his enthusiasm and his intensity of connection ringing through my own experience there's also a great anecdote about his time recording vocals on Sun's album Monoliths and Dimensions as connected to the soaring Um, please do go over to daniel's bandcamp .bandcamp danielmenchi.bandcamp.com and go to siege records as well siegerecords.bandcamp.com to find daniel's record the soaring and go over to attentionmagazine.co.uk forward slash crucial listening for more links to daniel's music and information on his picks as well hope you are all doing well as we edge tentatively into 2021 sending my best as always thank you so much for listening please do rate the podcast five stars preferably but be honest if you like I admire your candor this is Daniel Menchi on Crucial Listening
1: Hello, Daniel. Welcome to Crucial Listening. Hey, thank you. Thank you for having me on. Thank you. Thank you for
0: coming on the show. So you've brought three important albums for us to talk about. Before we get stuck into those, I want to ask about a recent record of your own, titled The Soaring, which came out on Siege just recently. And from what I've read, it sounds like the roots for this one go back quite far, the original conception of it. So I wondered if you could start by telling me a bit about that.
1: Uh, I believe it was, it might have been 2007, yeah, it was 2007 is uh, when I had an idea to do a vocal-only recording, uh, but never in mind of my own voice. I I honestly don't feel comfortable with my own singing voice, and I've proved that many times. Now, when I perform live, a lot of people see that I I do this uh, throat stick microphone on my on my throat mm-hmm. which kind of records my larynx and i put it through a bunch of amps and everything uh that's one thing but i really wanted to try to get a recording a vocal recording that was very pure voice and the one person that immediately came to mind was uh, a very close and dear friend of mine joe preston and his voice is so rich and amazing he he's He's known for his project, uh, the Thrones, mm. which is amazing and incredible. Uh, but he's also like this master bass player uh, that's been in several bands. Um, first Earth album, he's pretty much all over that. Uh, and then um, there's a Melvin's album that he's on. I think I, I'm not 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 knowledgeable on Melvin so much, uh, but I think it's Honky. Anyway, he was in several Silver bands, Sun, uh, High on Fire. He's a real heavy, heavy, heavy hitter. But yeah. his project Thrones is actually the throne of awesomeness. It's, <laughs> uh, it, Joe Preston is really incredible force of nature. And one thing about his voice is, <clears throat> you know, mainly when you hear his recordings, it's kind of like this very intense growl or kind of like a, a in between of a growl and a um a very bar, uh, very you know very bass heavy voice mm. so I wanted to try to record him as clean as possible and and you know he was really kind of shy about the whole thing I said well Joe just pretend you're in the shower you know it's like you're just <laughs> singing in the shower and I really was very forceful on trying to get him to just sing he was in a really um You know, he kind of admitted that he was in a kind of a, you know, not feeling that great and emotionally and everything. I said, well, that's okay, but let's try to, you know, let's try to make something kind of awesome out of this. Mm -hmm. And so I went to his house and I had a puppy and it's my little dog that I have now, Arrow. He's a chihuahua, but at the time he was a puppy. He was tiny. So I had this tiny dog that literally could fit in my hand. Like it was he was that tiny wow. i said hey joe here hold my puppy just hold him and i'm gonna put a microphone in front of you and i just want you to close your eyes i just want you to sing the way that you just sing like so you're in a shower <laughs> and, the, and the funny thing is is he was uh, he was i caught him in the morning he was just wearing his underwear okay so here he is sitting in this chair in his underwear with this cute little puppy, and he's singing so beautifully. <laughs> his voice was an angel. It was so beautiful, so beautiful, so amazing. And he kept on going. I was like, and I kind of got to a point where he was just exhausted. I got great, Joe, beautiful, amazing. And, uh, and I took these recordings and I made uh, a big, huge, long drone piece called sebaric doxology and that title was sort of a collaboration title between him and I uh and because I was like well yeah I mean I was like this is very doxology, that'd be great but then it's like well let me make it more abstract and considering also it's uh is sort of has a reference to you know the three-headed Uh, dog that guards the gates of hades right and we thought that was really funny because we have this little puppy (laughs) 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 so we did a collaboration album where it was just it was you know him and me and it was just pure voice and it came out on a single-sided lp from a, a small local label here in portland Discouraged records it's really cool because it's one-sided and the other side of the record is locked grooves of Joe's voice which is Ooh. really cool and if you can find it um, it's pretty cool because it's like 23 or so uh, locked grooves of his voice just going oh, you know oh, this beautiful wow. beautiful growl and uh, it also came out on on CD uh, and DVD I made a we made a a funny video where we went to a fake Stonehenge and walked around with, uh, this little puppy (laughs) and, uh, it's a, the CD DVD is really, uh, easy to find and use, uh, sections of your record store. I, I'm constantly finding it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, it's the reason why is the label who released on CD, um, Decided to release it as a CD DVD on one disc, and you have to play one side as a CD and the other side as a DVD, and no one could figure that out.
0: (laughs) Oh, nice!
1: And so I couldn't even figure it out, and so it was like (laughs) this big problem where no one could play this damn thing, you know. But you know, the vinyl is completely amazing and awesome uh if you get your hands in the vinyl it's it's really beautiful so that was a really fun recording to do with a very dear and close friend and i really want i just always want to try rely on collaborations if i collaborate with anyone it has to be a collaboration of friendship Mm. um, not necessarily a collaboration of sound or music and it, it, it is a collaboration of sound music, but really this is just about friendship. And um, that's how I've always regarded collab- collaborating uh, with other artists. It's like, you know, the music is actually kind of a side. Uh, right. It's, it's off to the side. It's really about creating, you know, a friendship. And so uh, recently I've been just trying to kind of I'm always trying to challenge myself of coming up with something different a different angle or approach with my music a lot of times it's not usually that different um you know it's not like you know i wish things i could do something really radically different uh to you know shock myself but it's always sort of like well it's on the same it's in the same book but not the same page right but type, type you know And I had an idea originally, how should I say this? Whenever I get an idea, it's ridiculously too big. And then it's about the process of scaling it down. (laughs) And so I had this idea of doing a big, you know, like music for a choir, like a really big choir. And, uh, you know, uh, a lot of it was a little bit inspired by the Sacred Harp shape note singing, which... um, still exists and that's like a American folk uh, situation where uh, people will sit in a square and the falsetto side will sit on one side and the you know the bass side with sit on another and you know they'll kind of sing according to these shapes these musical notation as shapes it's a it's a very old uh, American folk uh, Christian tradition Hmm. um and uh i i i found that very interesting because it's just it was a um a process where people would read music of shapes and they would sing it because a lot of these a lot of people back then were you know they were illiterate they couldn't read um you know music notation or words but they could see shapes and they can sing it so that was kind of appealing to me so i was thinking of like, well, it'd be really great if I could, you know, come up with something for a choir, but it is so out of my reach, um, on how to do that. And then, you know, I started thinking like, well, it wouldn't be great if I could hire classically trained singers and try to figure out how to give them notation. And then I just couldn't even get myself to come up with that. I had a learning experience, um, of my failure to work with singing my own singing especially and happened actually kind of around the same time as i recorded joe preston is uh right after i recorded him and did that recording i'm trying it's a little bit hard for me to remember the um the 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 times and dates but we got both joe preston and myself got asked by stephen o'malley to come up to seattle to do vocals for the uh, sun album monoliths and dimensions and it, it was a very cryptic email like oh okay well sure why not let's do it <laughs> yeah and and it was this it, were, it, it was really interesting because it was immediately like well of course that sounds great <laughs> yeah we have no idea what you want to do, but sure. And Stephen was, uh, you know, in Seattle because his his family lives there. So, but then also there's a fantastic studio there that uh, Randall Dunn was running, and and they were able to kind of get uh, some, you know, a lot of stuff for this gigantic album the monoliths of dimensions uh a lot of the the recordings there but also in other places and then piece it all together for one big final record so anyway joe and i hop in the car and we drive up to seattle it's like a three-hour drive and we're both just wondering like what is what is this what will this be what what's going you know but we're just doing it and myself i was thinking like i'm not really a singer uh i don't really sing but i think you know people kind of see that i do do that with my live performances with my throat hmm. my larynx singing so i was like well should i bring my throat microphone or is this you know <laughs> so we arrive and the the instruction was that there's going to be a you know this piecing together a male choir for this one particular track because they had another track that was, that was all women choir, a female choir. So there was going to be two tracks that was very, you know, women-based male based for singing. And so here we are uh, a few of us actually in this really tiny studio and Attila, who was the vocalist at the time, he was not there, but they had the recording of him and we were supposed to be doing this big, huge, you know, uh, you know <laughs> thing uh-huh. now keep in mind i had arrow with me which was like a little puppy <laughs> like and uh that you know everyone's kind of holding it while they're doing these and, uh, well the thing that was very interesting was um we're doing these recordings of all of us going oh you know uh the, the song that you hear on that album is hunting and gathering mm-hmm. that's the track so that was what we were recording over and over again the engineer kept on stopping and going hey um someone's out of tune uh we have to do that over again and (sighs) and everyone's kind of like looking at each other like okay let's do it again and i was like over and over again and then finally there was like a pause like yeah it's daniel um hey daniel and i was like what are you what do you mean? I don't understand what's this tune thing. And then <laughs> they come in with a little one of those little old Casio keyboards, like uh, from the '80s, and they hit like a tone, and it's like, "Here, try to match this." And I was like, "Burn," you know. And I go, ugh. and, like, <laughs> and all everyone in the whole room is just kind of going, "Um, hmm, yeah." <laughs> oh no! So then. I my heart sank because I was like I apparently I I really suck at this. Um and apparently there's a whole you know art form to choir singing even if it's <laughs> right. for like and uh finally it was like yeah Danielle could you just kind of sit out on this one and I was, and I felt like um oh I don't know, you know just someone on, a, a little child in the playground that you know can't play in the game anymore oh, you know and, yeah and i felt so embarrassed i was absolutely just like oh my god yeah. I, I didn't. <laughs> and it was the first time ever i realized that i'm absolutely not a musician like i'm just not a musician <laughs> I'm, um i'm something else uh I, I i i guess i'm a painter or a sculpturer with sound uh but i'm just not a musician i really don't know anything about music so, anyway, the recording just sounds amazing and incredible uh, in the studio while we were there. And we all were kind of excited, and we all left uh, for the evening to drive back to Portland. And, but you know, the whole time, I just felt really terrible. Yeah, But I didn't tell anyone, and no one really talked to me. It was just sort of this thing. And so about eight months later, Sun comes to Portland to perform and I, I go see, it and I see Stephen. I say, hey, Stephen, how's it going, man? Goes, oh, yeah, great to see you, blah, blah, blah. And sheepishly, I, I ask, hey, how's that recording going? <laughs> and he pauses, and he looks at me. He goes, dude, your <laughs> vocals are so sick on it. <laughs> I go, wait, what do you mean? He goes, oh, man, we're doing the final mixing. And we noticed that everyone sounded too clean and too like a perfect choir. But then your vocals sound like a dead zombie. And we're like, wait, that's the perfect ingredient. It's like this dead zombie just in the mix. And I was like, oh, so you liked my vocals? Oh, it just sounds like death. It's great. It's just a perfect mix. And uh, I was really, I felt like, again, like a school child that, you know, was really embarrassed. And now I'm like, oh, I did a great job, actually. (laughs) I thank you. And then if you hear the recording, it sounds so massive and gigantic, all the voices. But you do hear this god-awful, you know, (laughs) and that's me. Wow. So the, the deal was from that learning lesson, that was like 2007, I believe or a, a, something like that mm-hmm. was, okay, don't, Daniel, don't try to be a musician. Just don't even try, don't even try to sing. Don't just, just don't. Just, <laughs> but the voice is the most harmonically rich instrument in existence is the voice. And it's something that I'm very obsessed with, with the voice. Uh, whenever I hear bands and music, it's kind of like it's the vocal element that really gets gets me. It's really, it really sells me on a recording. Hmm. Um, the v- human voice is something so beautiful and rich and incredible. Um, I, I hold it up very high. I certainly did not hold my voice up very high. So, <laughs> um, so. Uh so again back to present day like this year um I really passionately wanted to do a vocal only recording uh, but absolutely positively not my voice that's for <laughs> sure and I really want something that was very rich with a a uh you know a, a baritone and falsetto balance you know hmm. and I This whole time I was trying to think of hiring classical singers, hiring a choir, hiring this. Like, can I get an art grant to get just a big, you know, a big thing? And over and over again, I was like, what am I thinking? Just why don't you just use your friends? Because that's what it's all about. (laughs) Um, It's all about friendship. It's all about friends. And if you really want to get the best performance, from someone else it, it has to be a really good friend it has to be a, a really beautiful friend uh the closer the friend the better a, a stronger art can be created so mm. I had to kind of slap myself and say Daniel work with friends and you're going to get the best recording so Fave kolocha of um fur uh has absolutely the most angelic voice. It's her voice is really, truly beautiful beyond compare, beyond measure, mm-hmm. beyond words. Her voice is absolutely stunning. And I've we've we've I did a collaboration with Mammer for that was a lot of fun to do. Uh, and you know worked. Just, you know, I've always been so intimidated by her voice, the beauty of her voice, that I, n- I never really thought of working with it because i didn't want to uh how should i say i didn't want to like destroy the sound quality of her voice right but then it then it just hit me like oh my goodness this would be perfect record her singing as clean as possible and record joe preston as clean as possible and do it in a way that's a total friendship uh gathering and so i i i Got in touch with them, and we were like, okay, let's do it. And I drove up to the island that uh, Faith lives at, Vachon, and Joe met me there. And um, I just, I kind of just, you know, I didn't exactly have a plan and I didn't really know what I was doing, but um, I just kind of said like the only reference that you have is I'm going to play sine waves of tones, of uh, one high tone, one low tone. And I'm going to, you're just going to listen to these tones and try to match them. So here I am with an iPad, with, a, with an app with uh, sine waves, where I'm kind of moving sine waves around. And they're listening to the sine waves and they're singing according to the sine waves. Uh, which was a, a rather fun thing to do. It was fun for them. It was fun in the idea of trying to chase a sine wave with your voice, right? Uh, I'm sure other people do this all the time. I, uh, but of course, this went on for about like an hour and a half, right. uh, where you know these sine waves are going into their headphones and they're constantly chasing the the, the, the frequencies with their own voice and the sine waves. Uh, but you know, but my goodness, it was so beautiful, so beautiful, (laughs) um, recording them. And, uh, um, and so, you know, it, it was kind of taking what I did over 10 years ago, 10 years ago, longer than that, uh, with Joe, and just having a very abstract idea and strategy, just a very abstract strategy, which I guess maybe that's an oxymoron to say that. Um, <laughs> abstract strategy. Um, might be a title of my next album. <laughs> um, and uh, and just kind of do some faith work. When I say faith, not uh-huh. faith the, the person, but faith as in, you know i got a lot of faith in this friendship and i have a lot of faith in the music that can come out of this friendship and i i'm gonna lay down my faith and uh i think this is gonna work and it 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 really did work Their voices are so incredibly beautiful and when i was mixing it i i kind of felt like um you know they needed a third element uh, and, and the third element was like even lower bass. It was I needed a, a much more richer bass? And obviously, I'm not going to be singing on this one. So, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, <laughs> we can rule that out. Um, but uh, I, Joe Preston had not one but two double bass cellos at his house. And he lives about an hour hour and a half away from me. And he has two double basses, which is really amazing. So I went up Mm. there and recorded these gigantic double basses that were just huge. I mean, they're like taller than me. And I don't know how to play these instruments at all. Uh, I don't know how to play any instrument, but I just recorded myself playing these instruments the way that I feel like playing them, which is basically playing them as slow as possible and finding the you know the sounds that i really like and um so yeah i recorded these bass cellos at joe preston's house and again this was another act of friendship where it's like you know hey can i just come over to your house and you know play these bass cellos even though i don't know how to play them and you know i'll try not to scare your cats um and (laughs) And you know, can you hold arrow, my doggy while I bow it, you know, that type of thing. And, um, yeah, so I got some really fantastic rich sounds from these double bass cellos. And I said, you know what, this is perfect. This is going to be great. This is going to be, um, you know, this really pure and simple recording that involves, you know, some of my best friends, closest, dearest friends. And, uh, you know, maybe, maybe no one will listen to it. Maybe no one will buy it and maybe no one will care, but you know what? This is a document of friendship and that's all it's about, you know? So that's the story with, uh, the soaring. And originally, you know, I made a mix that was way too long. I sent it to uh faith and she was head over heels. She loved it. I said, (laughs) well, you know, it's too long. Um, you know, we can, I can cut it down. We can cut it down so that, you know, it's, you make for an LP or whatever. And she's like, no, 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 no. It has to be the whole thing. It has to be the whole thing. And so I was like, are you sure? Cause <laughs> you know, that type of thing. And she was really adamant that it has to be one hour long. And mm. I was like, okay, Hey, if you say it, you, you, that's, we're doing it, you know? Mm-hmm. And, uh, uh, and, um, you know there's talks like they actually wanna release it as l. p. which would be two l p s and you know kinda wow. i kinda of, I kinda of tell them like i think that might be i i don't know if that's really a great idea but but it, you know just the idea of flipping over records and such, but you know it's <laughs> fine. um yeah maybe it will happen maybe it won't I don't know, but uh it's on c d and digital and uh you know it's just again if I collaborate with someone, it's out of friendship. It's a document of friendship. It's not a, of course it's a music document, but really for me personally, uh, and also the people involved, it's a document of friendship. And uh, so that's what the soaring is really about. So yeah.
0: Amazing. Daniel, that was such an incredible story. I mean, I've had the soaring a couple of times through now. I think being able to go back and listen in light of that context. It's going to be super rewarding, so thank you. Um, now, we should go on to talk about your important records. One yeah. one question i like to ask to begin with, and we touched on it before we started the podcast proper, is how you thought about the term important when coming up with this list. So was there a way that you thought about that word in order to produce this list of three records?
1: Yeah, it, it was. I, I had to... Take a few steps back because i i um hmm, how should i say this um a, a lot of times i i could get a little bit turned off by the self-righteousness of nostalgia mm. and I, i'm finding that so many people will kind of will talk with a, like a, a clenched fist about what was real and what was awesome what was great when they were in their formative years, you know, what was great when they were a teenager and such and this and that. And I, I kind of felt, I get, I get, I get so exhausted by people with so much pride and what records was the real deal for them. Hmm. But yeah, they kind of want to say, well, it's a real deal for the rest of the world too. And I'm like, ah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and so, but it was, a, it's a very good, challenge a very good question and um, immediately I just a lot of times I just don't you know I I just feel that nostalgia can be very toxic is how one can really convey it Mm. but then thinking about it uh, about some of these records it's like what makes them important is first and foremost how they completely knocked my brain out so that I th- don't think there's no thinking, it's about feeling, mm. how it really changed my perception of the world, let alone music, let alone sound, let alone art, but just pure perception of life as a young child uh and teenager, and how even these records that we're going to be talking about, they absolutely do not sound like my music uh in a sense mm. but but they completely, they, they are completely, a, um, you know, the, the cornerstones of what, what, who I am. So, you know, it's, you know, in one sense of the word, I was a little bit hesitant on, you know, formative year, the formative years of how, what music affects you. Hmm. And, but then there's other side of me like, well, you know, I can't deny it. I can't deny that right. there's things that really completely changed my life, and as a matter of fact, I I owe my entire, uh, I owe a lot of my existence to these some of these records. If you really want to get down to it, um, and and then more, I kind of thought about it, like how incredibly important and crucial, uh, you know, some, some these these records can be in growing up. Um, you know, it could be either a guiding light or a beautiful pillow of comfort that you rest your head on. These are the kind of the records that fit that. Um and so, you know, um they're they're important to me. Um but at the same time though, I don't I, I really despise um the, the pride that a lot of people have, like, oh well, back in my day, right, music was real. <laughs> you know, and like Well, actually, it wasn't, but whatever, (laughs) you know. (laughs) So, you know, these are very, very deep personal uh, cuts. And I think I really do appreciate your podcast or your your interviews because I'm like, this is really great that the uh, artist that you're interviewing does touch upon how these records kind of get in the bloodstream of the artist and makes them who they are. Mm. You know, it's um as opposed to a overall cultural, you know, uh importance. This is more like a personal importance, not a cultural importance. So absolutely. Yeah.
0: There'll yeah. be no point doing more than one episode of this podcast if it was about <laughs> categorically important records, you know. I think that's why I enjoy doing it's it. It's
1: like it's like um I was at the I was at a um the library Way back, and there was this gigantic, thick photo book of uh, nothing but photographs of the Black Flag logo tattoo. It was all just hundreds (laughs) of photos of Black Flag (laughs) tattoos. And then just this deep analysis of interviewing people, like why they got, you know, why it's so important that they have a Black Flag logo tattoo and everything. I was like, my. God, this is pathetic <laughs> and um so you know it's just something kind of funny about that where it's like well nothing wrong with having a black flag tattoo but the idea that hey uh, let's buy this gigantic photo book of hundreds of black flag tattoos right and, right and read about why Black Flag is so important. I take it, I like Black Flag too, but I'm not going to get a tattoo. But Yeah. Um, but you know what I'm saying? There's this thing of, uh, I think it, it's more common in the punk metal world of, you know, hey, this is real and you're not. you know, Right. Like, well, yeah. Uh, you know, I tell you what's real is how these records affected me. So yes. let's talk. I should probably shut up and start talking <laughs> like, about um, these records, right? Nodding
0: everything you're saying. Uh, let's get stuck yeah. into your first album so yeah if you give me the name of it and then a little bit about why this one is important to you as well
1: okay so the, the first album i want to talk about is alvin Lucier's uh, music for a long thin wire and the story about this particular recording was it, it came out in 1980 as a double lp uh, but recorded a few years earlier i believe now In 1980, I was 10 years old. Um, And when I was a child, I was just your typical kid who hid out in his bedroom and just listened to the radio. And I had a tiny little clock radio. Like, you know, just that was the only music thing I had was a little clock radio that had a really tiny little speaker on it. And, you know, there was only two radio stations that I would listen to and one was just the classic rock station. Again, this was like, you know, 1980 or so. It might've been like 81, 82. Hmm. I, I, it's hard for me to grab it, but clearly it wasn't before 1980 because the, as I look the, that album came out in 1880, but there's one radio station here in Portland, KABU, uh, and they would play, you know, different stuff, alternative stuff, you know, um, things that was just wasn't, you know, classic rock, right? Mm-hmm. And I remember uh, being a little child late at night and right next to my bed with my little clock radio with a tiny little speaker. Um, this is the same speaker that is also the alarm. So, you know, when you wake up in the morning, it's like, <laughs> and it's the same speaker that plays music. But, you know, again, lo-fi of lo-fi of lo-fi. But that that was my world, you know, like, and just like you see the old image of the dog staring at the gramophone speaker being really curious, you know, like that old, um, okay, well that's, imagine me, but in this tiny little clock radio, (laughs) listening to anything I can get my hands on, anything I could just hear out in the world. And so I'm listening to it and there was this drone coming out and, but you hear a few record, record pops. Right. And so it was like, Oh, they're playing something on the radio. And I know it's a, it's a vinyl record, but it's just this drone that's going on forever. And again, you know, this is, you know, this is like 1981. I'm 11 years old and you know, this was such a what is this type of moment and such a I'm I'm locked and frozen staring at this my clock radio what's coming out of it and it just kept on going forever and I was like what is this and how can they play this on their radio because (laughs) because you know those days the radio was the only thing that existed uh and as far as like music, that's, you just turn on the radio if you want to listen to music. Right. Uh, unless you want to go buy your music. And if you buy your music, then you play your music the way you want to play it. But really, the radio was it. And I was absolutely, as a child, stunned that there's this drone that was moving a little bit, but not much. And, uh, and then the DJ came on and goes, oh, well, that was Alvin Lucier's music for A Long Thin Wire and he basically read the back of the LP. He says, Well, that was recorded uh, using a single wire stretched all the way across a shopping mall, the longest shopping mall in America. And it would play by itself, meaning Alvin Lucier did not touch the wire or anything. It just kind of let the wire just play on its own. And the length of this wire was just. I, actually, I don't know exactly the length of it, but it's extremely long, <laughs> like, extremely long. And I was absolutely jaw dropped when he described that, that that's what I was listening to. The idea that not only a whole record was made with just one string stretched as far as possible and not even being played, absolutely blew me away now mm-hmm. here's the other angle the shopping mall angle so you have to understand that here in america shopping malls are the cathedrals that we have right. yeah. okay so europe has cathedrals that represent this great god of catholicism and such but here in america we have shopping malls which is the god of capitalism mm-hmm. you know uh these, these gigantic gigantic worshiping centers of, of, you know, buy, sell, buy, sell capitalism. And shopping malls was a really big deal in America in the seventies and eighties. And, uh, as a child, you know, my parents just would take me to the shopping mall every week. And it was exciting. Kind of like, you know, just going to, you know, a gigantic cathedral from, for Sunday mass. It's like, <laughs> now we're going to go to the shopping mall. And you just walk around. And you're like, it's a shopping mall. This is great. This is fantastic because you're a kid. and You don't know what's going on. So shopping malls were really something that myself, as a little child, spent a lot of time in. We'd get lost in, and then parents would panic, and and you know. But shopping malls was just a a very strange American. Uh, phenomenon now digression the most horrifying movie i've ever seen in my life as a child that ruined me could not sleep for over a week was uh george romero's dawn of the dead Mm -hmm. now dawn of the dead takes place in a shopping mall i saw that again i might have been like maybe eight or nine years old when i saw it. it ruined my life now a zombie movie is a zombie movie, but the idea that a zombie movie took place in a shopping mall, right? Uh, absolutely, completely ruined <laughs> me. Okay, um, so I'm just trying to paint a picture of how important shopping malls were to you know a dumb kid like myself, mm. and so then to hear this recording. Coming out of my little clock radio of a long wire stretched through a uh, shopping mall, I just felt, I just thought it was like the most religious music I've ever heard. Like it was a beautiful, it was so amazing, incredible. But again, these are my young ears listening to it through a little speaker. And I didn't, I was like, what a, it really changed how I thought about sound. It, it you know, it, it I, the, the the longevity of it, the minimalism of it, minimalism um, of it, just was shocking to me because mm. I just thought everything had to be three minutes long, it had to have a beat, had to had to have a chorus, had to, you know, and uh, embarrassingly or not, some pride, some shame, I was like a big Yes fan, you know, the band Yes. Yeah, yeah. Right When I was a little kid, so when I was a little kid, I just thought that was the, that was the most craziest music was yes. Okay. That's like, that's how, you know, and I was like, Oh wow. They have an album tales from topographical oceans and their, the songs are like 15 minutes long, you know, you're like, that's radical. But when I heard Alvin Lucier's, uh, music for long thin wire, I just was like, there, there's, there's no way I can ever not forget about this. Hmm. Um, And for me, I kind of felt like as a child, I was like, it it communicated that there was a license to make music like this. I don't know if the right word license is is a really good word, but like permission, like, you know what, you you can make any music that you want, Mm -hmm. any length, as simple, as complex as a child that meant everything to me, everything to me. And so here's, here's the kicker is I never owned that recording. Uh, I never heard that recording since I was a child. Um, It was one of those things like, well, I'll get around to buying that record one of these days. But just that initial experience of hearing that recording as a child late at night, you know, when mom and dad are asleep and I'm just all alone with my dreams and, and strange you know existence of being a young boy and that recording coming through my clock radio hmm. that was such a sacred moment hmm. that I kind of was like I don't know if I really want to own that whole record and experience it again well, right 2019 I'm in Los Angeles and I had to do a concert I was performing with uh, Peter Ryberg and i had a, a few days all alone and i was really all alone i was like this is strange i where's i don't know anyone in los angeles and uh you know i rented a car i got a little airbnb what am i going to do it's a tuesday night hmm, i'm kind of bored okay well i guess i'm going to go to amoeba records you know largest record store in the world uh-huh. It's in hollywood and it's late at night so go there place is almost empty was a really sad kind of record store i mean they're shut down now right but i was like oh mm-hmm. ooh, boy amoeba is kind of might be this is kind of like yeah it's kind of a bummer so i went to the experimental section it was tiny it was really tiny it used to be gigantic and i go wow not much for experimental music here anymore huh <laughs> and i was like sheesh this is really a bummer but then I noticed, oh, Alvin Lucier section. That's cool. Wow. Look at all these CDs that no one has bought. And I just was like, I'm just gonna grab all of them and and buy them. And one of them was a CD copy of Music for a Long Thin Wire. I was like, God damn it, I'm just gonna buy this. Sheesh, Golly, finally, let's buy this. <laughs> Listen to it, Daniel. And so I buy a big, huge stack of Alvin Lucier CDs, and I go back to my incredibly tiny, yucky, gross Airbnb that I was staying at in middle of Los Angeles, all alone. And it's really late at night, and I'm in bed, and I look at my uh, my phone, Twitter, and Ornabanchi tweets that like, "Oh, such a fantastic evening here in Los Angeles celebrating Alvin Lucier's 85th birthday." (laughs) What? The concert tonight with Alvin Lucier was fantastic and amazing <sighs> and and something for the books. And <sighs> thank you everyone for coming out tonight and I my heart just sank. Oh my it God. just sank. And I was like, wait, Alvin Lucier performed tonight. I did not know about this. It was his birthday, 85 years old, and they performed all many performances all types. my A lot of my friends were there. Everything, I had no idea. Nice. I just, I, I was so destroyed. Yet the irony, the comedy, that that same moment that I was buying all these Alvin Lucier CDs that he was performing, <laughs> like, I don't know how many miles away, but not many in the same town. I had no idea. And just a sheer coincidence that I also had bought Music for Long Thin Wire. Now... I get home and of course I play the recording and it's like, yes, it's a very lovely recording. It's really cool. But <laughs> it doesn't, it didn't have that childhood, you um, know, impact of course, of course, because of that, that moment, the time and place. Mm. Um, I mean, it's a, it's a fantastic, brilliant recording. And if you get around to it, there's a a, a fantastic book uh, of interviews with Alvin Lucier that you can buy. And there's a whole chapter about his story of recording music for a long thin wire, his story of obtaining a military grade magnet to use to resonate the string huh. and the problems of traveling with this magnet in an airport. It's a great story. <laughs> anyway, um, I, I, I can't remember what exactly what's uh, the title of the book, but it's pretty easy to find. Uh, but um, amazing recording totally changed my 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 world in my sense and 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 again this is something as being a a young child and having something like that drop from heaven meaning the airwaves Mm. and just coming into my being as i'm in bed trying to get some sleep but I, i can't because i'm enthralled by this beautiful drone and again I was like 11 years old, maybe 12, I don't know. And uh I just owe everything to that experience, that one evening of um that scratchy record being played on the radio through my little radio. <laughs>
0: <laughs>
1: Fantastic. I mean, so that, that's my story of that uh, that album.
0: Yeah, amazing. And also to be very cheesy, the fact that you've got this record as the binding factor between an experience you had when you're eleven and one you had yeah, when
1: you're 40, it, forty-nine fifty is very nice as well, very satisfying. And and bless Ornabanchi's heart for re-releasing and releasing all these Alvin Lucier recordings. They're amazing. They're great. Uh, they're so so fantastic and uh you know Stephen o'malley and Oren have performed their guitar drones on with alvin lucier too and collaborating with him and it's like really i think it's just cool. so cool so great mm. um i really recommend getting just about anything by alvin lucier for that matters um he is an absolute milestone of you know new music, any music, all music. I think he's, he's a really, he's a really big giant. And also he is a person that I don't know him. I'd never met him, but you, you, when you listen to him, talk, see him, you're like, you know, this guy is like cool. This is a cool guy. This this guy's cool. (laughs) You know, this guy, this guy's cool. You know, like, yeah. he's cool you know like his smile his vo- you know his speaking voice mm. you're kind of like uh, everything is about um whatever age that you're at that older person you uh, know you know it could be a parent or it could be a teacher it could be um you know a neighbor could be anyone but like that older cool person is something that i've always been attracted to mm-hmm. you know like just cool old people are awesome you know <laughs> and and alvin this year just kind of like on oh, man like geez you know i wish you were like an, a relative of mine you know <laughs> like you know a, a, a grandfather i never had or you know or could have or whatever it's like man this guy's cool yeah. you know like you're cooler than Santa Claus you know <laughs> like for like move over Santa Claus have him loose are you're better in you know, my book
0: Let's go to your second record, Daniel, again. Give me the name of it and a little bit about why it's important to you as well.
1: Well, these records are kind of going in chronological order as far as my age, uh, my my formative years. So Alvin Luther was, you know, when I was like a little kid. And the next record is De Kreutzen, uh, their very first album, self-titled De Kreutzen. And De Kreutzen was this hardcore band from Milwaukee that had several albums but really the first album self-titled is the one and <clears throat> the thing about de Kreutzen is um again in 1985 i think it came out in 85 um I, I could be corrected but in 85 i would have been eight i would have been 15 years old and hardcore punk was a really was was the deal uh, back then in my world? Uh, it was you know hardcore punk, extreme metal, um, you know whatever, just noisy and extreme. You just I, I just jumped on it, and that was it. Mm-hmm. You know, and the thing was, I was a skater too. I was really into skateboarding. I was obsessive skateboarding. And so, skateboarding—the physical act of skateboarding—is so physical and intense that you gotta have music to go with it, right? Mm -hmm. And I was a kid that just always had a Sony Walkman with the head, those dumb headphones with the little foam things, right? Uh And just blasting hardcore or whatever obnoxious, you know, metal punk. And that's just all. That's just all in my in my little young teenage world. That's all that existed was extreme, extreme, extreme. Mm-hmm. And skateboarding was all about extreme, extreme, extreme. But I have to digress a bit about skateboarding. You have to understand that skateboarding in the early '80s, mid '80s, was really dumb and stupid. We didn't really do tricks. Okay, we didn't do. Uh, there was no such thing as ollie flips it was like why would you want to juggle on your skateboard (laughs) like it was like it was skateboarding was very dumb and stupid you know we were perfectly happy to skateboard straight into a brick wall and call that fun you know um, we would just grind curbs and just roll off of ledges no i mean amount of tricks tricks was actually considered like uncool. It was sort of like, what do you mean tricks? You just go fast and destroy things. You know, that was just kind of the thing. So skateboarding and punk metal was like peanut butter and jelly for the sandwich of teenage hormones that I had. And um so but there was a problem. And the problem was with the hardcore punk all that it was, it was really stupid macho, stupid asshole guys, asshole men, asshole boys. Uh, you go to these hardcore shows; everyone's getting beaten up. Um, white power skinheads are showing up in mobs and just beating up anyone like myself uh, that looked, you know, weird and different. It was extremely violent. The shows, concerts here in Portland, um, it just was really awful you know i Mm -hmm. know the word toxic kind of gets thrown around a lot but this was really fucking toxic right right? yeah i loved the energy of hardcore punk metal and all that but the whole culture behind it didn't fit me because i was just a, a scrawny skinny kid who was actually really wimpy and didn't want i just couldn't hurt a fly i didn't want it Heard anything i just didn't have that in me i just wanted to skateboard and destroy a curb you know that was like as far as i went for you know any acts of violence i just want to take it out on a curb you know <laughs> um and i was i was a really extreme skateboard mean i skateboarded all day and all night and then go to a hardcore punk show and you know slam dance and stage dive and then <laughs> and then crawl into my bedroom window so my my parents wouldn't know what I was doing and wake up so sore. And, you know, from my, I had a nickname when I was a skateboarder. My nickname was Scabby because I was covered in scabs. (laughs) Um, I wasn't a good skater, but I skated really hard and extreme, but I fell all the time. So I was covered with, sores and scabs not sores i mean uh sores is something you get from the disease right but like um the scabs from you know from the asphalt ripping my skin and flesh and all that so i was just covered in scabs all the time so all my friends would call me scabby um <laughs> it was kind of painting the picture of the physical and the music involved at the time in 1985. Mm. so so when you go in the record store and you got all these punk hardcore records, you flip them through, you're just like you look in these album covers, you're like on Well, I'm sure the music's great, but they look like assholes. I'm sure the music's great, but they those guys look like assholes. And they all <laughs> look like they all look like guys that want to beat me up. Uh-huh. And I kinda you know, this is sort of becoming a bummer of this whole punk hardcore thing. Like, um and you know, I, I used to be really well, I'm very tall, but, you know, I used to be really skinny with long hair, and, you know, I just had these white power skinhead guys would target me, like, they would call me, you know, s- hom- homosexual slurs that you can only imagine, right? Mm-hmm. And then, you know, they would beat me up and kick me and, hold, and uh, you know, surround me and kick me with their boots and, you know, and they'd, they'd, you know, try to... Yeah, you know, it was awful. It sucked. It was awful. Mm -hmm. And so you're just sort of, you got a a lesson that, you know, toxic masculinity is fucking real. Right. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And uh, I don't want anything to do with that. I'm a really, I just want to be a nice boy. I want to be a nice kid. I just, I don't want to be an asshole. And hardcore punk is starting to really smell like a bunch of horrible, horrible, Boys and men, I don't want anything to do with that. Uh-huh. Anyway, so here's this record that I pulled out of a record bin at a record store, a punk store. It was De Kreutzen, and the artwork is bright yellow, and it has this artwork of dinosaur bones on it. It's very strange and arty. I was like, wow, that's, that's cool. And you flip it on the back, you see a photo of the band, the really skinny, scrawny, young teenage boys With their instruments, and I go, I kinda look like them. Right. I think I I think I haven't heard this record yet, but I kinda look like them (laughs) and they look like me. I think I'm gonna like this record, I'm gonna buy it. And um oh my goodness, you know, right when I put it on, it was the absolute soundtrack to my physical state of who i was at that time when i say physical state i mean the intensity of skateboard the intensity of slamming on the concrete over and over again and and happily doing that on a daily basis um the sound of the the skateboard wheels and the, the skateboard trucks grinding and skidding and screeching was matched the music of de Kruijzen, you know mm-hmm. and and again, when I skateboard, I always had headphones on, but also there came to a point where I was the only one who um of the old skate uh, skaters in my town I, I knew how to drive. I had a car, so you pack a car with all your buddies to go skateboard, and you go to a skate spot, which is basically would be like, oh, I don't know a little little curb and a something to kind of go up and down on, nothing fancy, and you open up the car doors. And you crank the stereo in the car, and you gotta make sure you park so that the car doors open up so that the sound blasts towards where you're skating, <laughs> and and you put in the and cassette because at the time it was all cassettes. That's all I bought was cassettes because they're you know you can't play a record while you're you know Walkman right so right so that was all about cassettes. Cassettes were also great because it was easier to hide from my parents because my parents were really like, what are you listening to? You know. <laughs> And they just, you know, so it was good to kind of keep all this forbidden music hidden from my parents. Mm-hmm. And so cassettes, I used to turn, I used to take out the the artwork of the cassettes, the J cards and turn them around or put in something blank to hide so that, you know, mom and dad don't know that I'm <laughs> listening to corrosion of conformity, you know, or something <laughs> like that. Nice. But then to Kruitson was like this fantastic abstract thing. Where like, first off, I might I might not even mean saying this band right, like to Kreutz and, and you know, we all were like, hey, there aren't they called Die Cruising? <laughs> because dude, you're like, you're cruising on your skateboard and you might die. Die <laughs> Cruising. Like this is literally the conversation that my myself and my buddies all had. Like, dude, this band, they're called Die Cruisin. <laughs> Cause we're on our skateboards and we might die. <laughs> cruising and then they're like I think it might be German it's like are these guys from Germany it's like no I think they're from Milwaukee and they're like um this is where's Milwaukee you know this is like the the thing of dumb teenage boys have conversations about Are like wow. uh-huh. but man the music oh my god you know that first album de Kreutzen, is is a classic and um the thing that's so fantastic about it is every single instrument on that album is mixed perfectly equal Mm -hmm. so the bass guitar is absolutely up front the bass guitar is up front when any band that pushes the bass guitar up front is a win for me uh again i was a fan of yes so you know Chris, (laughs) Chris, quiz quiz uh chris squire and uh that bass guitar pushed up. Did you know that um, Chris Squire said, like, why, how the his bass guitar got pushed up is because the headphones in the '70s, when Yes was recording, the headphones in the '70s could not do bass response very well. Ah. And so Chris Squire was like, "Hey, you know, I can't hear myself. I'm gonna need to push it up a little bit." And then you push it up a little bit, and you push it up a little bit, <laughs> and because the headphones were studio headphones were so terrible back then. They're all very high end. Um, even uh, Pete Townsend credits his hearing loss to studio headphones because they would just churn it up so loud, and but it was they just headphones didn't deal with bass. Right. So Chris Chris Squire would kind of you know convince the rest of the band like you know you really need to turn up my bass guitar. <laughs> anyway, we're not talking about yes, we're talking about DeCroyson. Anyway. <laughs> So in that first recordson album the bass guitar on it is f- f- fucking awesome mm-hmm. right it's really awesome the drums guitar but man the vocals okay so the vocals on that Detroitson record are is so screechy awesome um so so it, it is a perfect sound to what I was feeling when I was 15 mm. 16 years old and also you know you're just you're skateboarding you're you're just you're you're pushing your body to the max you're slamming on the concrete you're just bleeding you're you're on the edge of breaking your bones and you know you have the whole world you're angry at and you know de was just like absolutely the kerosene to the fire you know Mm -hmm. um and but it was really good it was really good music um And I remember reading a zine, like, I I don't know what it was, but it was some sort of zine around that time. And Steve Albini was interviewed, and he was talking about how much he really hated the whole hardcore movement, hardcore music, for the same reasons that I did. Um, But then he talked about DeCruytsin, because they were on Touch & Go, and Touch & Go was the label that released Big Black and all that. And so Steve Albini was just praising to that, hey, this is a band. Yes, they're hardcore. I was just about ready to give up on hardcore. This is Steve Albini talking. But they shine a light that's like no one else can touch, you know? Mm-hmm. And they were a bunch of teenagers to now I didn't see this at the time, but now you can watch it on YouTube. But Dekreutzen is on a cable access show, and like I, I don't know what year, like 80-45 or something like that. And they're so fucking awesome. They're just these young <laughs> skinny kids, and they're playing their hearts out. And this cable access show. And believe me, I wish I saw it at the time. But you know, I just that's not how that worked. And. They're interviewed and they're really articulate, and really nerdy. But you know, you really just go, "Man, these guys are mean." I am them. Like they're <laughs> raging about the same things that I hate, which is basically um, asshole men, asshole boys, bullies, just bullies, mm. horrible, mean, mean people, uh, mean people in your world. And you know, Dacreson was the soundtrack. As a weapon against these horrible people in your teenage young self life, and uh, I mean, of course, I saw these—you these, know—this cable access video, you know, only a few years ago. But again, there was a definitely a a bloodline of scrawny, wimpy, skinny dorky awkward uh young boys who have no idea how to navigate through this real world because this real world is so awful and mean but we found our way and uh you know music skateboarding was the only way at that time (laughs) (laughs) and um and the other thing about the that was really magical was um the fact that they're from milwaukee which is a town that i didn't you know, didn't really know much about other than that, it was like, oh, that's the city where Dekreuton's from. <laughs> um, I'm sure Milwaukee is famous for other things, but <laughs> it's for me is might as well just be in town, you know. <laughs> and I actually visited Milwaukee. I performed in Milwaukee in 2008 or so. So when I was there, I was just like, oh man, I'm in Dekreuton city. This is great. <laughs> but I was like, going, wow, this city is, you know, Milwaukee is Milwaukee. It's like a lot of American towns and you kind of get a gist of what made a lot of the extreme hardcore punk music uh so exciting and refreshing from the midwest from small towns and i think i feel i believe it has a lot to do with the eternal power of boredom Mm -hmm. that boredom uh, when, when you're in an environment, you're young. Boredom is such a gigantic force of, of negativity. Uh, and unfortunately, boredom makes most people really mean to each other. Mm. But if you can find a way to combat it, it it's some incredible art and energy can come out of from that fight against boredom. And, uh, and so it just starts to make sense, especially when you're dealing with the Midwest with the winters. I mean, it gets really cold and, you know, but I kind of sense, sense it too, you know, here in Oregon where I live. I mean, it's actually really beautiful here, but, you know, people complain that it rains a lot and such. But uh, boredom is a really great motivator to just, you know, do or die. When I say do or die, meaning do something amazing and awesome or you're going to dive boredom. Right. <laughs> you know, right. right. Uh, I was in Oslo, Norway, many years ago, and I was walking around. And I was like, wow, this is a very interesting town. It's very small, but, you know, it's wow, this is, uh, I thought Oslo might be a little bit more of a metropolis, but you no, know, it's a really small, cute little town. And the sound artist, uh, Lassa Marag. Yep. Yeah. He, uh, you know, he's been living there all his life, and he's kind of, He's around my age, a little bit younger actually. And he said a really interesting quote that I thought rang true. Uh, as he said um, in uh, response to uh, black metal? And I'm not really a big black metal fan per se. Um, it's not something I really, you know, it's a, it's something you just kind of snicker at. But it's not, you know, it's not my, <laughs> it's not something. It's not something I go do black metal rules. I actually. My criticism of the hardcore punk can also translate over to the whole black metal. It's like wow, it's, it, it is a music genre filled with assholes, right? You know, it's like there's a, lot of, there's a lot of assholes involved with that stuff. Yeah, totally. But last summer Rock said something v- rather interesting and profound. He goes, you know, the thing about black metal that people don't understand is that if you really get down to the heart of Norwegian black metal, all it was was a war against boredom and that's all it was and it's just as simple as that it was a war against boredom and for for me i thought that was a really great thing that he said because i'm like that translates very well to my side of the world my side of my my existence it's just like the war against boredom Mm. if you could do it right if you if you can fight the good war against boredom really beautiful things can come out of that if you do it just right, you know, but you have to be as cool and beautiful and friendly and loving as possible while you're battling that war them <laughs> boredom. Um, but if, you know, but it's also pretty easy to go into a very negative zone, especially if you're an awful macho male. Um, <laughs> and I mean there's there's something kind of interesting about um, you know following those two genres. And so with DeCroits that whole album is so it means so much to me as far as it's just the perfect soundtrack for my existence when I was 15 16 years old and the feeling that my body my, my memory of my body as it's flying in the air <laughs> uh, on my skateboard, and the Kreutzen's blasting out, and I'm about to hit the concrete, and I do hit the concrete, but it's not a graceful hit the con- like I I do hit the concrete it's I don't <laughs> land I fall and my body is just scraping grinding against the, the the asphalt and flesh and bones are just ripping and bending and I get back up and I do it again <laughs> um, over and over and over again and uh maybe you know I just to me it's like the best years of my life was destroying my body physically with skateboarding and listening to DeCruytson. And I also do understand about the whole destroying your body thing. Like, I've never done a drug in my life. I really don't like the whole drinking thing. I just never really was into getting drunk or anything. Hmm. But I still had a physical nihilism streak um, in me uh, that is, you know, it's common. And, uh, you know, with a lot of young, young boys, I digression i work at um uh as a librarian at a middle school so i work with a lot of these you know teenage kids Hmm. all types all types and when i say all types um you know full diversity and which is really beautiful and uh so I, i kind of have my finger on the pulse of what it means to be young and dumb and but just filled with a lot of passion and um, a lot of passion, but just, but not really n- knowing at the time how to really channel it, but you're starting to figure it out. Mm. So even at my age right now, um, you know, I still like to work with, you know, young people all the time, just how to kind of channel their energy. And this very confusing and boy, let me tell you, man, what kids have to go through now compared to what, you know, what we all had to go through them. I mean, that's a, it's a whole different world. And right challenges like you know but i I worry about um the fine art of dealing with boredom uh, with a lot of young people um because distraction can is not really quite the solution so you know Mm. there's a lot of distraction goes on you know you're on your phone and you're kind of distracted by you know the bullshit of culture and everything when it really it's like don't get distracted by that. Follow your blood. Follow your heart. Follow your bloodstream. Like, follow that bloodstream, folks. Mm. You know? Yeah. Uh, don't follow the uh, the live stream or the internet <laughs> stream. Follow your bloodstream, you know? Uh, it's going to take you somewhere really awesome. The other streams are not, you know? Um, <laughs> this is me talking to a 15-year-old or whatever. So, uh, decroitzen that first album is just so great, and the vocals, man, the vocals, the vocals, yeah. just this that it's unbelievably incredible screech. So here's the other thing about the Kreutzen is 1986. Their second album came out. Second album, Oct- October File. Again, pretty cool album. Very strange, awesome. Not going to be my favorite, but it's a strange, awesome album they were definitely getting away from the hardcore Mm -hmm. and that's, that's all right. That's fine. But they finally went on tour. Okay. And so they came to Portland, but at the time Portland was always a little bit behind on what's really was happening outside of the world. So it was like, Oh, Decortson's playing, but they're playing with a whole bunch of really awful, awful, macho hardcore bands. Right. And that's a bummer. And it's going to be a really violent show. There's gonna be a whole bunch of white power skinheads there trying to beat up everyone. It's gonna be a bummer. It's gonna be awful. It's gonna be violent. But you know, I have to go uh, because at the time, if there was a punk show, hardcore show, it was almost like a um, obligation. It's like, well, you have to go, um, right. even though it's even though it's gonna be really dangerous and um, really violent. And believe me, the violence was off the charts. Anyway, so. Big, huge hardcore show, De Kruitson's playing, uh, but there's an opener. And the opener, no one heard of, okay? And this opener was called Boy Dirt Car, which was the members of De Kruitson. and a few other people. And Boy Dirt Car was the first band that went on. And again, I was 16 years old. All I knew in this world was extreme punk, extreme metal, blah, blah, blah. Boydur Carr was the was a noise, a, a full noise. Not not going to say industrial, but they had metal on stage that they were banging. But they had several guys on electronics, and it was a absolute total wall of noise. Wow! Screeching feedback. They had two vocalists on microphones that was chanting over and over again. He clawed out his eyes, <laughs> like over and over again. To this wall of noise, sheer distortion, feedback, went on for 45 minutes, banging on metal, and I was absolutely mesmerized, and I was so blown away again, I was 16 years old. This, you know, this band was to Car. No one heard of it. I turn around, like I was right at the stage. I turn around, I look over and all the punks, all the hardcore, all the asshole skinheads everyone. Everyone had their middle fingers up. They're all were, they all were just shaking their heads, and it was hundreds, hundreds of assholes just middle fingers up. And I go, wow, <laughs> there's a band that everyone here hates, but this is really fucking blowing my mind. This is amazing, and this is not punk. It's not metal. It's more extreme than anything. It's it's just going on forever in this relentless, like, pounding. And then when I turned around, I see all the people that I actually hate, which is the huge <laughs> bunch of guys that want to beat me up, with their middle fingers up at this band. I go, wait a minute. I think I just found a new best friend. <laughs> and it's Boyd Dirk Carr. And again, this is, you know, way before the internet. So, you're like, when stuff like this kind of hit you into your life, you're like, what the fuck is this? Right. This is so weird. Yeah, there's no research, just no nothing. You know, and I was absolutely blown away by this butcher car, and De Kritsen played, and um, you know, and, and they were great, but they were kind of moving on to a different, different, you know, a little bit less hardcore. And I kind of, I even noticed like a lot, uh, a lot of punks and horrible people were, you know, flipping, you know, giving them hell too. And then finally, you know, the big hardcore bands played. Uh, Dr. No, I think, was one that played, and a few other ones. But it was just awful after that. All the violence went crazy. Anyway, so the next few days, I was at a record store. And lo and behold, there's a Boyd Der Carr record. And I was like, my God, there it is. And this this album is called Winter. And I really recommend checking out this album. Mm. Very strange very strange record, again, from Milwaukee, from members of Detroit and then other people. There's a fellow man in de car Eric Lundy. And Eric Lundy had several albums that he released under his name. And I became very obsessed by, by his work. All noise, all very abstract, all very strange. Uh, and so DeKreutzen was this amazing, beautiful gateway into this gigantic, incredible world of noise music, of noise, everything. Totally changed my life. Totally changed my life. Hmm. And it also made me go, hey, bye-bye, hardcore punk and all you (laughs) assholes. I'm going over to this whole new world of extreme noise, extreme abstract abstract music really and Mm. to me to this day i i am very profoundly religious to the world of the abstract um and i i kind of hope that my music is comes across as a hymn as a as a as a religious song to the abstract you know um if it's just it has to be you know, the more abstract, the better. The more abstract, the more pure, more more beauty, more. Just, just you know, the world of abstract just, just was was it? Like I'm not going back. You know, <laughs> and even at the time, I had a little bit of a, some problems with like the whole industrial thing because because the I, I'm just not really that big a fan I, uh, of anything that's just called an industrial. I. Like well, it's not abstract enough. You right, it just doesn't have the abstract, you know. And but when some of the early mersbau records start to come out, you just you're looking at the artwork. And of course, you hear the music. You're like, this is very, <laughs> this is really fucking abstract. <laughs> and you're like, I'm sold. Right. You know, yeah. like, but uh, I know it sounds pure blasphemy, especially saying this to a English person. But like, I just don't never. I never got the whole throbbing gristle thing. Like, I just didn't get it. Um, it's just not my thing. Um, I don't don't. Yeah, actually, only recently I discovered the Chris and cozy stuff, and I really like that a lot. But um, but the throbbing gristle stuff. Um, I'm only saying what I don't like to connect with what I do like, which is the abstract. But I kind of had this problem with the jumping into the industrial stuff because it just wasn't abstract enough. Mm-hmm. It wasn't, um, as I kind of say, it doesn't give you that WTF thing. Like, the you know, the, what the fuck is this? Right. What what the fuck is this? <laughs> and the bigger the, what the fuck? Oh, my fuck! what the fuck is this? <laughs> oh, my God. You know, I'm in love. Right. But when there's a bunch of symbols, a bunch of um, people posing with their uh, facial expressions, looking like, mm, ah, this is... You know, again, back to the punk and the metal and the posing, you know, I just Hmm. started just not liking the posing, you know, the, the facial expressions of like, this is how we represent our music (laughs) by making angry faces, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Um, Not saying that, you know, I mean, who knows, maybe I'm guilty of that too. I don't know, but I try not to be. But, um, Boyd Dirk Carr, uh, totally changed my world but it's really from the entry point of de kreutzen and i cannot overemphasize how beautiful all that was for a young teenage boy like myself it was just like you know i you know you 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 got me you 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 shot the 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 poison dart into my neck (laughs) and and you got me like i'm yours (laughs) and uh you know it was and it only like a several years later i uh you know reached out to eric lundy who was the main guy doing the main noise in boyd car and just kind of say hey i know you don't know this and i know you know i know it probably doesn't mean anything but you know i was 16 years old <laughs> when i saw you perform and, you know, and i was right at the front stage and you know i kind of I just you know i told him wrote him a fan mail like <laughs> I kind of, you know just let you know you changed someone's life you know <laughs> one lonely evening in 1986 like you really changed my life thank you <laughs> yeah. uh but my favorite song on the de album is uh all white mm mm-hmm. Which is, was a complicated song because I was like, I remember being a kid and all of us, all of our skippers, hey, what's up with this band? They, they're German, but they have a song called All right. White? I think we right. might have a problem here. Yeah. And I say, like, no, no, just check out the lyrics. Check out the lyrics. I don't think it's like that. Like, this, is, this is me talking in that, that teenage boy sort of way with my buddies. Like, man, I really fucking hope they're not a bunch of asshole Nazis. That would be, be fucking suck, man. <laughs> you know, reading the lyrics, like, well, you know, the lyrics are – Rather abstract, and then the song "All white is about being trapped in a room. you know, it's all white it's like a soft cell, like a a padded white room hmm. there's no windows, you know, right. and it's just these long, long screeching vocal deliveries of what it feels like to be in a white room trapped and I was like, yeah, that's exactly how I feel as a as a teenager, you know, <laughs> like that's it, that's the feeling you know. Right. <laughs> And and you just want to escape. You just want to scream out of that room. Mm. That's that's it, man. That 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 is the force, you know. And uh, so I really love that love that song, "All White." And I, to this day, even in my fifties now, um, I just I play that DeCurtis record all the time. And whenever that song "All White" goes on, I just churn it up as loud as possible. And I still. It still gives me that 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 feeling of of intense power to overcome you know that white room of boredom mm. and uh, I really, really, really think of all these beautiful people uh making this music uh when I was a kid to kind of give me that that sword to um you know battle the beast of boredom <laughs> <laughs>
0: Well, let's, in that case, go to your final important record, Daniel. So, again, if you give me the name of it and a bit about why it's important to you as well.
1: The final, final record uh, record is Litanies of Satan by Diamond Gallus. And, again, as we began our conversation about the voice and, you know, when I just recorded the story and everything, I've always held the human voice as the ultimate Ultimate instrument. It's the ultimate. You know, it's the voice is something that I just I'm in awe of. Whether you can use it in the most beautiful manner or the most destructive weapon. Um, I'm I'm rather obsessed with Nina Simone, so I just have mm. like like 30 albums of Nina Simone on my iPhone, and and you know her voice just rips my guts out, right? Um, and and but Nina Simone's voice, again, that is something of such a a, a force of nature. That said, though, um, you know, with, experiencing the recording Litanies of Satan by Diamond Ellis, was an absolute life changer. Um, to begin with, I bought it on cassette. I At first, I remember I was kind of like churned off over the idea that it had Satan on. Not because of Satan, because, you know, I mean, Satan's cool and all that. <laughs> but it was just this thing of like, Satanism was always been really cheesy. It's just kind of like cheesy, especially back then. It was like, well, that's, pretty cheesy you know right oh, that's good kind of silly right? right you know and anything with satan on it, it was like well that's kind of kind i mean take it i like i got i like slayer like the next person um <laughs> but you know you're sort of like uh but like, you know this is really silly when they talk about satan okay you know it's right. like <laughs> you know i mean it's fun to yell satan you know it's like this but when you st- i saw this cassette of you know this this You know, this black artwork with this shining red head. Artwork's been different for the years, but the one I had on cassette, it was, you know, it was just this mysterious, blurry red head that it's her. You can tell it's a woman's head, face, but it's really blurred out. And then it was like her name. Uh, which was, you know, for, for me as a young person, I can't remember when I discovered when I bought that cassette, but I might have been like 18, I would say. So 18 is kind of a hell of a year to a hell of an age to discover radical music. I mean... Mm. I think I think Lemmy from Motorhead said like everything that you hear when you're age 18 is going to blow your mind away, but that's because you're 18, not because the music was mind blowing. Right. You know? Yeah. Um, but you know, I I kind of thought that was kind of funny that Lemmy said that because I was like, well, he's kind of right. Like, whenever someone talks about the most profound music, it's like you heard that when you're 18, right? You're like, yeah, <laughs> you know. There's something about that eighteen, boy. It's just you know the whole world opens up. Mm-hmm. So I had a been, it had a been nineteen eighty eight uh, when I bought that cassette, and it was one of those things where, thankfully, the record store at the time, which actually was the record store that later released my first album, so there's kind of a connection there. They let me hear it first, and when I heard it, I was like, what, what the, what the, what the hell is it? What the Oh my! Like it's just was music. It was a voice. It was music. It was it was noise that did not come from planet Earth. Mm. You know, like this is when you first hear that "Litanies of Satan" by Demonic Alice. Um, it, it, it's unlike anything. It still holds up now. Mm-hmm. Like that is a weapon. as an absolute <laughs> weapon. Um. And I kind of was like, okay, well, I'll bypass the Satan part of the title and buy it. But I still was very confused by the whole thing because I was like, there's nothing satanic about this album or recording. I mean, it sounds like um, everything attacking you but i'm not really seeing the satan angle and i read later an interview with monica alice about the problems of trying to explain the title and says, yeah there was nothing satanic about it at all it's a mm. uh, had more to do with a um inspired by you know these early poems by oh my goodness i can't remember the poems but uh because kind of these these prayers to satan and but it actually the whole thing had these allegories to um uh you know to, to AIDS which was what's mm. going on in the 80s and had a much bigger greater scope of what it meant um, in, in her music and so I was very blown away by this I was very blown away that it had a much more expanded um, you know uh, um, angle to Diamonica, Demonic Alice's work and it expanded even more and more and more as she went on with her records and her career, uh, she is an absolute force of nature. Mm-hmm. When I say force of nature, she she goes beyond human. Um, it is that record, listening to Satan, really changed me quite a lot as far as what it means when it comes to extreme music um, or just extreme anything but her approach of just making the most discomforting force of sound to really shake you up Mm. um, and make you not only not think, but just feel, but feel in the most deeper, deepest of deepest levels. Um, I mean, of course I loved all her albums, but that first one really, really ripped me in half. Um, Also, you know, I mean, I hate to kind of pinpoint this, but in the 80s, it was just such a horrible decade. I mean, I don't have anything great to say about the 80s, to be honest. Um, But I have to emphasize, like, on my end of the table, my end of my side of the tracks, I just had this world of horrible men in my life. Horrible boys, horrible men, just the male awfulness of just everything. And I'm just like a dorky kid. So of course, you know, you're just seeing how horrible uh men are and to hear Demonte with this recording was like, "Oh my, you're I just want to be with you for now on." Right? Like, I just want <laughs> I want to jump on your boat. I want to be on your train. I want you to be the the train driver. I want you to just drive me get me away from everything horrible, uh, from this world. Like demonic Alice. you are the captain of the ship. You are just <laughs> like you, you, <laughs> I mean, when I, you know, again, I want to refer to her as a force of nature. She's beyond, beyond human. Uh, but just that intensity mm-hmm. is absolutely incredible. Now, here's the deal, 1991 or two, I I have a hard time trying to remember exactly the year, she came to Seattle, okay, now I was in Portland, Oregon, it's three hours away, and again, it was like before the internet, so like to find out that someone was performing in another city was kind of hard, and somehow I got word, you know, holy fuck, Demonic Alice is coming to Seattle. And I figured out how to buy tickets. Got tickets, like boom, boom, fast, boom. <laughs> Drove all the way up there. She's playing in one of the largest venues in Seattle, was the Paramount. Okay, which is gigantic. It's huge, it's beautiful place. That's where all the um, big bands play and everything. It's huge. But I was like, going, huh? Is she gonna fill this place? I don't. You know, is she really that big? Right. She was kind of big at the time. And so, you know, I'm driving all the way up there. I have, like, no money. I just spend, like, everything on this ticket. I spend everything on gas. I'm just, like, you know, on the edge of everything. But I'm like, fuck it, man. This is major. This a major deal. Demonic Alice is coming. Right. You know, this is it, you know. <laughs> and so I walk in the gigantic um, concert hall to find my seat. And I'm walking and walking and walking. And I go, oh, I'm front row. Not only am I front row, but I'm front row right in front of the PA, like the on the one side. And I'm like front row in front of the PA. And I'm like, OK, well, let's go. <laughs> and gallus there was no opener or anything. So this is like this real deal. Like this is an evening with Di- Gallus. This is it. And this is mm-hmm. not a fucking concert. This is going to be a full on experience. You know, I, I don't want to use the word ritual or anything, but this is going to be not a concert. This is a, a witnessing of a force of nature. Mm-hmm. And I'm front row and I'm like 21, 22 years old. I don't know. And she comes out and she's covered in blood. Uh, Could be fake, I suppose. And she's naked. She's wearing a a, a little skirt dress, but that's it. So she's wearing a little skirt dress, naked, topless, covered in blood, hair gigantic, two microphones. And she just goes off. It just goes off, full throttle, uh, in all her Demotic Alice glory. And for incredibly long performance, that was full intensity, full on. And I cannot overemphasize how profound and how powerful that concert was to me. It was absolutely by far the most life-changing concert I've ever witnessed. Wow. And it really, in so many levels and layers, but to witness one person alone on a stage with Only two microphones. And take it, she was doing some really wild, wild effects, right? So she had someone kind of moving some effects around. But again, the minimalism of a performance of one person and to be as powerful as possible with what you have, which is your voice. I was like, this wipes out everything in my past as far as what I thought was powerful. Mm. Like this is, she completely harnessed pure atomic energy of you know a thousand a thousand atomic bombs right there <laughs> And she's, and also you know it's like my goodness she's you know this, this is a, this is a naked woman covered in blood in front of me just screaming her head off i mean i'm like going this is really you know more people should have something like this done to them you know like this is <laughs> you know this this is good you know, this is this is a very beautiful thing, folks, you know, <laughs> like I really recommend that you kind of, you know, <laughs> experience something like that. Right. Um it, it it does good things to you. Um and I remember just after that I was like, you know, I don't know what it will take, but I, you know, I I want to perform and I want to perform, you know, uh now take it I've I've been performing now for 30 years and I perform all different types of things, all different types of styles and all different, you know, but for me, her performance, demonic Alice's performance was so profound that I was like, I, I I'll never ever get to that level of what she is doing. I, we all fall short in the glory of demonic Ellis. Okay. We can say that, <laughs> but at least I just want to, you know, I, I want, I really want to do that. I really want to be in a situation where I can perform alone on stage, just me and myself with minimal amount of stuff and project a force of sound that is so intense and powerful and, but has a emotional intensity that really gets right through your, your cells and can kind of get right in there. Um, and again, you know, she raised the bar to the highest, but it's just one of those things like the kinda of gave me that, you know, that permission that that um, you know, hey, you can do that too. You know, mm-hmm. you can put your heart out. You can just kind of really really put your heart out and make it powerful and intense and other people will, will receive it. Um most people won't, but people can, and you know it's possible. It's possible to to create uh, an emotion so intense that it, it 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 just wipes out all thinking, all senses. Mm. Um, you know, give it a go. That was the thing. It was like, <laughs> give it a go. I could, you know, do it. And I was like, yeah, I'm I'm going to start performing. Thank you to gallos for you know. <laughs> Passing me that flame So <laughs> it, it really meant a lot to me um, Now the interesting thing is About a few years later after that concert She came back to Seattle And she was doing a piano performance In a small club Like a piano bar I was like well that's kind of strange But that's cool And I, I got my ticket Drove all the way up there Three hour drive Three hour drive back home Middle of the night And um, and she was doing all piano covers and, um, I remember, I remember like it, it was, you know, it just, it wasn't the same. Um, and that's fine. It's fine. It, like she can't be doing this, her same thing for decades. Right. It's like she, she changes, she, she moves. That's the beautiful thing about what she does. I wasn't, I couldn't, I had a hard time trying to jump on board with that. She was doing all covers and I was just like, well, I th- I, I do appreciate the covers that she's doing, but but to be fair, and to be fair, um, you know, she's doing Nina Simone covers. And I'm like, well, huh. I'm not a big fan of what Demonic Alice was doing, but I never really listened to Nina Simone before, so I'm going to. So thank you, Demonic Alice, for <laughs> turning me on to this. You know, So there's a lot of people that kind of cover a lot of musicians, and then you go like, well, maybe I like it, maybe I don't, but I hear the original and you hear the original and that changes your life, you know? Mm-hmm. So there's this whole thing of what made Demonic Alice, Demonic Alice, you know, she was doing a lot of like Ella Fitzgerald and Billie Holiday, uh, Johnny Cash covers. Um, she was doing a lot of stuff. Of And, you know, I was like, okay, I wasn't won over by her covers because really what I was won over was her unique... Uh, expression of who she was with with those performance early performances. Like, man, that's demotic Alice. That's not a cover or tribute. This is really a pure energy that she's projecting. Mm. That's I really liked. And that's what I gravitate towards of what I really, really find powerful. So I mean it's it's great what she does. Uh, don't get me wrong. But when she's really being, you know, Herself as as an original force of music, wow, that's powerful, you know. But at uh-huh. the same time, though, I sure I really got to thank her for her exposing me to all these other amazing musicians that I no one else in my world was exposing me to. But hey, thank you, Demarco Alice, for <laughs> turning me on to other music. So you know, huge, huge admiration. You know, at that concert when she was playing piano, I was there way early okay and i was just being a dork hanging out around the club all alone and i'm like "Ah, i guess i got here too early i'm a dork (laughs) and she walked right past me i know this doesn't really say say, saying much right but she walked right past me now i'm very tall i'm um i'm very tall i i don't have british measurements but i'm six foot three but you know i'm pretty tall at the time i was like tall and skinny and and this woman walks past me, and she's very much smaller. And I didn't recognize her, but it was her. But she was, like, you know, really tiny to me, to my size. Mm. But I was like, oh, my God, that was Alice. She just walked right past me. But on stage, she looks, like, 24 feet tall. <laughs> okay? So that's the thing. You know, this is what she does live, is that she transcends measurement okay like (laughs) when she's on stage she looks like an absolute giant okay and i was just like oh wow that was really powerful that was really remarkable i was like i mean of course she's a human being we know this but really what she conveys is beyond human Mm. and beyond beyond measurement uh in my opinion um so yeah, though that that that's that's a biggie for me. Um a real biggie. And Litanies of Satan just got remastered. Yes. Twenty twenty. Remastered. It's, uh you can I just today I just purchased it on Bandcamp. Uh and I'm gonna play it after we're done here, but um pretty pretty remarkable that um you know and anyone who's just like kind of—I mean—I remember when the whole black metal thing was happening. And I was like, "Oh come on!" Has anyone heard of Demonic Gallus? Like fucking hell, man! She's <laughs> gonna she'll eat all those stupid little boys up. I mean, come on, you know. And I was I was I was kind of saying that under my breath. Like anyone, like I really like black metal. I was Like dude, you don't know shit. Demonic Gallus man! Come on, come on! Guys.
0: I have one more question for you, Daniel, which is something I like to ask quite frequently, which is if you really want to listen to a record, so you're going to go and listen to Litanies of Satan shortly, if you really want to soak up a record as much as you can, do you have a setup or an environment or something that you do in order to to bring that experience out to have that maximal listening
1: experience? Well, that's interesting to say that because... um When I was young, um, you know, Fidelity was not a thing. You know, you're just using this Sony Walkman with a cassette and uh, terrible headphones. But you know what? Life was beautiful. Life was beautiful. You got the message. You got the force of music (laughs) and these really crappy things. And it's funny, too, again, back to Alvin Lucier's music for Long Thin Wire. I I played the CD recently uh, because I bought it last year. I played on my nice stereo in my nice living room and big subwoofer. And I'm like, yeah, this is really nice. Um but I'm not feeling that nostalgia of being young and dumb and not knowing what good sound really is. Mm. But you just kinda you just get what you have. But there's quite the charm in that. Mm-hmm. Um But you know, I don't I don't know what to say about that question. I mean, I do know what to say, but it's like this thing where it means a lot to have young ears and not knowing what is the is the is the standard of listening. You just listen. You just get what you can get, and you soak it in. And its life is beautiful. Uh, and you have no idea that life could be even more beautiful. It's just like this is really great for what it is at the time, at the place, at the you know the time and the place. Um. There's a lot of young people that I I hang out with and they'll make comments that they're they're not fans of this type of music, that type of music, when I'm kinda of going, Well, really? You don't like that band? I've just kind but then I go, But wait, Daniel. <laughs> it was a it was a time and a place. Time and a place. Uh-huh. Like it was awesome. For a 15 year old in 1985, it's not awesome for a 25 year old now. Like, it's like, no, you can't expect people, you know, that are 25 years old to buy Atomizer, buy a big black and go, dude, this is awesome. You're like, I don't know. uh, know." know, know, You're like, actually, now that's cool. You don't like it. You, You actually, you know what? You're young. What is the most awesome thing in your life? That is it. Hold on to it. Do not listen to old people talk about how great everything in the past was. Fuck them, okay? Uh And, you know, that's just how it is. You have to have an absolute respect for everyone's uh, growing pains. Pains. And you, you, you have to have immense amount of empathy for what anyone is going through growing up. That said, you also have to have absolute respect for the music that they choose to, to deal with those growing pains. So you need to have, I encourage everyone to have as much empathy and respect for young people, because man, what they're going through, that's that's a whole different game than what we were going through in our ages, or whatever ages it was. You gotta, you gotta understand, like, you know, when you look at the early American folk music, you know, the Great Depression that went on here, and. You know, this incredible rich history of American folk music, you know, and gospel music, blues, all that. You're like, you know, that was the real deal back then. And that's the music that they used to deal with these incredibly hard times. And that was it. That was the firepower um, that was that was used. And that's incredibly beautiful. But, you know, trying to convince, you know, some kid, they're like, no, 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 you should really listen to, uh, um, you know, uh, You know, Blind Willie Johnson. Uh, Seriously, Blind Willie Johnson rocks, man. You gotta, you gotta really listen to Blind Willie Johnson, man. It's way better than Skrillex. Like, you can't be listening to that EDM shit. You gotta listen to some Blind Willie Johnson. You're like, well, no, just you know, what you got. What you got is what you got. Music is a, you know, it's it's a it's a it's a um, it's a warm blanket fresh out of the dryer. It's also a weapon against, you know, the bullshit of the world, the hardship of the world, the boredom of the world. Um, you know, it's, 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 a it's, it's the most powerful and beautiful uh, force that a, a young person can get their hands on, you know, so, you know, no judgment, uh, all empathy. Um, but, you know, I, I just, I always kind of like, there's a lot of records, a lot of music that, that I really cherish and love when I was young. But by by all means, no one should be listening to that. You know, right. like no one, I don't, you know, like, I mean, there's a lot of guilty, guilty, uh, what's that called? The guilty pleasure records that I have. I'm like, oh, man, I would not wish anyone to listen to this record. But, you know, I can't, I kind of <laughs> love it, you know. Anyway, so, yeah, that's about it. Um, yeah. It's almost two. Yeah yes yeah, it's so, been
0: great daniel thank you so much for laying this all out for digging into these records and into the soaring as well this has been fantastic
1: yeah yeah and you know again it's just uh um you know what makes these records really important to me is that you know i looked at them i looked up to the, these artists as elders you know they were just I mean, take it to is like my age, right? So I, I can relate to him. But Alvin Lucier, Demonic Alice, these are really, really, really fucking cool people that are older than me and spoke a language that guided me big time. Um and I really hope that everyone can kind of realize that there's a lot of people younger than themselves, and you could be powerful. You know, uh, role models too. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I'm not a, a parent by any means, but um, but you know that's that's kind of part of the responsibility. Is just you know, if you're old, fucking hell, be cool as fuck to the young people, all right? right. Like, Jesus, <laughs> like, don't be a fucking asshole. You know, right. like be, you know, nothing's worse than a you know people that are older than you and just being mean and horrible. You're just like God damn. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so. So yeah, anyway, uh music is uh has always been about you know beautiful people that are older and wiser than me that's that's guiding me for life and man oh man Devonic alice alvin Lucier, boy <laughs> and that'd be it makes some yeah that was i wish they were they were in my family <laughs> <laughs> having them over at christmas time thanksgiving you know like oh yeah right on <laughs> but you know i do treat them like family you know they're just like psh, you know yeah. it means a lot to me so anyway that's all it is well, Daniel, thank
0: you once again, and to everyone listening, I'll see you next time. Goodbye.